This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week our attention turns back to Cuba. We'll explore prospects for diplomatic change during a second Obama administration and discuss a new documentary project from young Cuban filmmakers. But first, Kurt Devine is back with the latest on the case of Alan Gross, the American contractor imprisoned in Cuba, along with the rest of this week's review of news from around Latin America. This week marks the third year of Gross's detainment in Cuba. During his trip in 2009, Gross was attempting to set up internet connections for the island's Jewish community, but the Cuban government arrested him and he was convicted of crimes against the Cuban state. This week, Senate Majority Whip Richard Durbin went to the floor of the U.S. Senate to plead Gross's case. Jordan Derry has this story. United States Senate Majority Whip Richard Durbin addressed the Senate on the need for openness with Cuba this week, his remarks marking the third year anniversary of Alan Gross's detainment. Senator Durbin commended Raul Castro for the release of some political prisoners and allowing others to be assessed by doctors of their choice. However, Durbin said that in order for attitudes to change with the U.S., the Cuban government would have to afford the same liberties to Gross. In addressing the Senate, Durbin remarked that it was tired policies between the United States and Cuba that had caused this case to become so severe. Gross's incarceration is a tragic reminder of the stale, tired policies of another era. It's difficult to imagine how relationships between the United States and Cuba can improve while Alan Gross continues to be held as a hostage to the contrived grievances of the Cuban government. Durbin went on to say that he believed in the strength of the Cuban people and urged citizens to fight for the freedom of expression the way human rights activists like blogger Joanne Sanchez have. He closed his remarks by calling for the immediate release of Alan Gross. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jordan Derry. A bipartisan group of senators held a press conference this week calling on the Senate to pass a formal resolution on behalf of Gross. Protesters also held a candlelight vigil outside the Cuban Interest section in Washington, D.C., asking for the Cuban government to release Gross. We'll have more on Gross's case later in this program. The Colombian military bombed a guerrilla camp, killing at least 20 members of the Marxist rebel group known as the FARC. The FARC previously announced a ceasefire set to last through January, but President Juan Manuel Santos said the rebels did not follow government orders to abandon their weapons. Colombian ambassador to the U.S., Carlos Uretia, said the FARC's power has decreased in the last decade as a result of the government containing cocaine production. Uretia recently spoke about this issue in Washington, D.C. Let's not forget that FARC have benefited hugely from production and trafficking of cocaine. In a span of 10 years, Colombia has reduced by more than 50% the amount of land used for coca cultivation. The ambassador said that because the rebels lost a large percentage of their income, they agreed to the peace talks with the government, which were resumed this week in Cuba. Rebel leaders say much time could pass before they reach an agreement to end the five-decade war, however. Protests broke out in Mexico City as President Enrique Peña Nieto took office. Left-leaning students and activists threw rocks and Molotov cocktails at police outside of the lower house of Mexico's Congress. Authorities responded with tear gas and rubber bullets, injuring at least 100 people. 
The protests reflect the broader reality of Mexico's political division. Many fear the return of Peña Nieto's institutional revolutionary party will lead to corruption and less democracy. Already, human rights groups have accused the new government of abuses in how police dealt with protesters. Peña Nieto has pledged to uphold democracy with complete transparency. Investigators in Brazil arrested 61 police officers as part of a larger crackdown on corruption in Rio de Janeiro. A year-long probe revealed the officers sold weapons to drug dealers who continually bribed the officers with payments of $1,200 to turn a blind eye to their crimes. Eleven suspected drug dealers were also arrested in the effort, known as Operation Purification. The Brazilian government hopes to reduce gang activity ahead of the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympic Games in 2016. Guatemalan police arrested software company founder John McAfee after he illegally entered the country. McAfee says he requested asylum in Guatemala because officials and police made him a suspect in the killing of a fellow American businessman. 67-year-old McAfee denies any involvement in the businessman's death and says he fled Belize because police continued to harass him. In order to disguise himself, McAfee dyed his hair and stuck bubblegum inside his upper lip as he checked into a hotel in Guatemala City. McAfee was moved to a hospital at the end of the week after suffering a heart attack. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. This week, a look at the diplomatic stalemate between the United States and Cuba and the prospects for change in President Barack Obama's second term. We recently spoke with Phil Peters of the Lexington Institute about Cuba. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded interview. Let's start with the positive. I think in, in the relationship between the peoples, President Obama's done some very good things. He's opened up travel so that Cuban-Americans can travel without restriction. Uh people-to-people programs and other kinds of religious and humanitarian travel is easier for Americans who are not of Cuban descent. Also with Cuban-Americans, he's allowed them to send remittances without restriction so they could send money to their relatives without any limit at all. And those things are all good. It creates a lot, a big flow of information and new contacts and new kinds of collaboration. And among families of Cubans and, and, and Cuban-Americans, it's really important. It's providing seed capital for Cubans were starting little businesses. Under the economic reforms that are taking place in Cuba now, there's an explosion of, of new small businesses. There's about 300,000 new ones since uh, 2010. So 300,000? About, yeah, about that many new ones since 2010, just a little short of that. So that's, that's a very good development, and President Obama's policies have, have contributed there. Uh, between the two governments, there's, I think the tone is a little... Uh, uh, better, let's say, the um, contacts between our diplomats are, are a bit more fluid. Uh, but still, it's the standoff that's existed for a long time, the, the U.S. embargo, and now, of course, the case of, of a U.S. contractor, Alan Gross, who's, who's in jail and, who's a, and whose case is a big sticking point in our relationship. Well, let's talk about the Gross case. What is the sticking point there? Is it possible that the Obama administration can negotiate his release? Do they even care to negotiate his release? Good question. Uh, So far, they've said that they're not interested in negotiating. The Obama administration's approach has been to defend the program that he was involved in and to demand his release unconditionally. Uh, His program is uh, a political program run by USAID 
pursuant to the Helms-Burton Act of 1996. Uh, and it's a political program. It's a, a democracy program. It's a program that's ex explicitly designed to help bring about a change of government in Cuba. And pursuant to that, he went there. And he installed uh, satellite internet equipment. Now, lots of times people say he, he was bringing cell phones. That's not the case. He was installing satellite internet equipment uh, that created Wi-Fi hotspots. Uh, and uh, he went there five times. He was arrested on the, on the fifth time. Um, and so the Cuban government has said very clearly that for them it's an issue having to do with their sovereignty. And they don't like the idea that the United States undertakes to run political programs in a sort of a covert manner, although Mr. Gross didn't really accomplish much in the covert area, but he, he tried. Uh, he tried in the covert manner? He, well, what he said is that he's been there to help the Jewish community connect to the Internet. Well, that's, that's true. He, he set these things up in Jewish synagogues. And... Uh, in in uh, in Havana, Santiago, and Camagüey, I think the one in Camagüey didn't work, but he 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 attempted there. Uh, so yeah, he did set up these satellite internet installations in in uh, Jewish synagogues. Uh, from the Cuban point of view, it, it, it doesn't matter if he was, uh, you know, where he was setting them up or or for from whom for whom they were part of this political program. They had this Wi-Fi capability, so. I surmise that that from the point of view of Cuban, uh, of, of the Cuban government, they didn't know who it was for really. They say it had an explicitly political purpose, which of course it does. And if you look at U.S. program documents, I mean it's all a a tragedy. I think Mr. Gross, you know, he's a businessman who wanted to do a project and he got paid nearly six hundred thousand dollars for it. I think he was very very naive. I think it was a program that was destined to fail. And I think that, you know, speaking as a U.S. taxpayer, I think it's kind of crazy. If, if, the pro, if the idea is that the United States wants to help people have Internet in Cuba, there's a lot of other ways to do it. Um, there is Internet in Cuba, and you can you'd send money, for example, so that people could, could buy access in the places where, you, where they can get Internet access. If the, program, if, the pro, if the issue is to help the Jewish community in Cuba... For the amount of money we spent on on uh, on Alan Gross's project, which has turned out to be a complete and total waste of taxpayer money, could have given more than a thousand dollars to every Jewish family in Cuba. Uh, it was uh, to 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 send somebody to engage in a sort of cloak and dagger type of project, uh, who who obviously had no training and and where the odds were very very much against him. It turned out to be a, a total waste of money. And I guess a disaster in many ways. Well, a disaster, sure, for him. He's in jail for for fifteen years. He served three years. It's it's a it's a terrible disaster. Again, I think he was very naive. He he got paid handsomely. He took his chances. It didn't pay off. But of course, one has to have sympathy for somebody who's in jail. And and now, I mean, to get to your question of whether the U.S. government's willing to negotiate, they've shown no interest in negotiating. The the Obama administration hasn't, but. I don't see any way out of this unless the U.S. government finds a way to to go talk to the Cubans, see what it is they really want, perhaps differently from their public statements. Who knows? You never know till you get to the table, and see if there's a way to 
to work something out, where obviously the U.S. would have to give something up. I mean, we sent effectively an agent into their country to operate covertly, to do some things that were against Cuban law. USAID in their, in their program documents, if you read their requests for proposals and everything, they make it clear that the activities in their program in Cuba are against Cuban law, so watch out. They warn people right up front. Um, in a way, Mr. Gross is somebody who's been left on the battlefield, and I think the U.S. government owes it to him to sit down and negotiate and find a way to get him out. Do you see the Obama administration actually doing that, though, in the second term? I can't predict that they will. So there's, there's every indication so far is that they won't. If you look at their, the position they've stated, I would hope to be a little optimistic about it. I would hope that the election is now behind President Obama. He's won a decisive victory. Uh, Secretary Clinton is going to retire and rest. There will be a new Secretary of State. I would hope that the administration would take a fresh look at the, at the case and, um, and, and decide to, to, to change their, their posture and figure out a way to get him out. Is there any way to improve U.S.-Cuba relations without dealing with this case? Oh, sure, sure. And that, that there could be more opening in terms of travel and exchanges between Americans and Cubans. Uh, the U.S. government could decide to, uh, to open up perhaps some areas of trade. Um, the U.S. government could increase the bilateral contacts between our, between our governments. So, for example, oh, something like U.S. experts meeting with Cuban experts on environmental protection, since we share uh, a common environment and you know, study you know, maritime uh, uh, environmental issues together and look for, for perhaps projects where we could collaborate. Uh, I think the U.S. Would do well to remove Cuba from the list of state sponsors of terrorism, which I think is a specious uh, application of that of that designation, and has been for some time. So there's a lot of ways that the that the relationship could improve, short of dropping the embargo, restoring diplomatic relations, and all that. And all those things could be done within the realm of Helms Burton. We wouldn't have to roll back Helms Burton to do those things. Yeah, that's correct. They could all be done without any any legislative action at all. And realistically, um, it, it's unrealistic to think that we would roll back Helms-Burton in the next four years, given politics in the United States. Yes, I agree with that. Given the, given the legislative politics, given the fact that um, uh, the, the House of Representatives is in Republican hands, the, in the Senate, it's hard to get anything controversial done. I, I don't, given the lineup we have in the House and the Senate right now, it's, it's hard for me to see a way where um, legislation would pass in the next two years that would either ease the U.S. sanctions or toughen them, because I think there's also plenty of strength in the, in the Congress to block actions that would try to toughen the embargo. Well, for those who don't, don't follow this, Helms-Burton uh, is uh, legislative action that was uh, taken during the Clinton administration, I believe, yes. and, and um, was, was there to actually strengthen the embargo and, and make it tougher for any sorts of economic relationships between the countries and actually call for the overthrow of the Cuban government. Yes, it did. It, um, it's an extraordinary piece of legislation. It was passed in 1996, you're right, and it was, um, 
it, uh, what it calls for is a democratically elected government to be put in place in Cuba, and it includes various measures on the part of the U.S. to, to toughen our sanctions in order to, um, in order to help bring that about. It also includes the, the authorization for the program that Mr. Gross worked on. Um, and it includes, uh, it, well, and it says that a democratically elected government is one that has made a whole bunch of changes and obviously in, in, in things that, that most Americans would applaud, allowing free trade unions, free press, uh, organization of political parties without restriction, free elections and all that. And we're pretty far from that, even though well, there have been a lot of reforms. Yeah, certainly we are. The reforms have been on the economic side. It, it, it's got one aspect that's very curious, which it says it says that a democratically elected government is one that cannot include either Fidel Castro or Raul Castro, which is kind of odd because it's it, it, it means, under the definition of Helms-Burton, that even if Cuba were to change so as to comply with every single requirement in terms of democratic process, that if Cuba produced a an election result that, that that put Raul Castro in office in any part of the government, that we would say it's not a democratically elected government, which is a little strange. The only thing that would prompt change on our part is a total systemic change in Cuba. Or whether the United States would take the approach that, that we take vis-a-vis -vis every other country in the world. If we have disagreements and then we see that country do some things that partially address those disagreements or, or, or partially increase freedoms that we've complained for having been lacking, that then we, we will react to that. That's what it really boils down to. And in every other case, the United States, under the Obama administration and under past administrations, uh, it, it's very rare that we demand regime change and say, until you, there's regime change, we won't talk to you, we won't recognize anything. I mean, it's not a very realistic position. In the case of Cuba, it's not a posture that gets us anywhere. Phil Peters of the Lexington Institute and the author of the blog, The Cuban Triangle, thank you for joining us today on Planet Pulse. Thank you, Rick. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. As part of our focus on Cuba this week, we feature an interview with documentary maker Bill Gentile, who also teaches at American University. Gentile is the co-producer of the forthcoming documentary on Cuba, called Through Their Eyes. And with the help of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University, this fall, Gentile arranged the trip to the United States of two young Cuban documentary makers. The idea behind the trip was to allow the Cubans to premiere their mini-documentary in the United States, a project made with the advice from Gentile. He discussed the work of the Cuban filmmakers Maria Elisa Perez and Donesque Canton Fernandez and their project called Solar de Once in this pre-recorded interview. You know, this piece started out over a year ago, and it's been a long road since then. Um, uh, it's been a fascinating road, too. I was in Cuba last year, 
So while there, uh, one of the workshops that I conduct was a four-day workshop supported, as you mentioned, by our Center for Latin American and Latino Studies here at American University. And I held it at the Instituto Superior de Arte, the, the Advanced Art Institute, which is Cuba's most important art and communications institution. So I had the, the, uh, the four-day workshop there for Cuban students, and we ran a competition, you know, uh, for the folks who produced the best documentary um, we would, the prize would be um, um, a trip to Washington to show their work and to, uh, you know, meet our students here, meet more of our AU abroad, uh, American University students. So these two young Cubans, uh, one actually is 25, the other one is 30, uh, so they're somewhat atypical uh, uh, students. They produced uh, this, this documentary called Solar Once, and as you say, it's about the public housing project, a public housing project in, uh, in Havana. Housing is one of the three chronic ills in, in uh, uh, Cuba, one being uh, uh, housing, the other being food, and the other being transportation. And it's a fascinating look at how people live in one of these solares. And, and you know, they can be pretty tough, tough neighborhoods, these places. And this solar is no exception. Um, um, and it, and it, it deals with the, the living conditions and it is an essay kind of in both the living conditions and how people feel about living in those conditions. And now here's an excerpt from the mini-documentary Solar Once. Puede que en algún momento de la vida haya sucedido alguna problemática, haya corrido la sangre, algo por el estilo, pero ha sido de momento y siempre ha sido personas que no andan aquí. But it opens up so many doors of 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 of, of inquisition, so many so many doors of of questioning uh, about what's happening in Cuba today. It's unusual to have Cubans doing this sort of expressive work where the state is not so involved in what the product ends up being, is it not? You know, the people who are creative in Cuba, the people who make documentaries, who make photographs, who, who, who do journalism, who do art, who, who, who have some kind of communication with, not just with, within Cuba, within, with the outside world, you know, they're always trying to gauge where this thin red line is. They don't really know. No one really knows because the thin red line moves a lot from day to day and, 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 and from, from situation to situation. So, we're, you know, they're always trying to, 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 like, approach this thing, not challenge the thin red line, not challenge the authorities, but, but say what they want to say. And, and sometimes the things that they want to say and want to express aren't pretty. Having this piece of journalism, this piece of documentary uh, being made by, uh, uh, about Cuba by Cubans, I think, is so much more valid than, 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 you know, us foreigners going into Cuba and, 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 and making these pieces. I mean, because they know the culture. They, they, they live the culture. They're, that's their reality every day. That's their pan diario. It's their daily bread, as they say. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the documentary itself. Uh, it ends with someone from the local committee for the defense of the revolution making a statement. Um, I, I wonder, is there an irony there at the end from your point of view and how that ends? 
Well, there is. I mean, there's the, the head of the, the, the block committee, as they're called, uh, and these block committees are, are designed ostensibly to protect the revolution from foreign invaders. And They're the watchers, are they, they not? They are the watchers. They also serve, you know, they serve, they serve a dual purpose. They serve to protect from, from um, outside intervention, and they serve probably just as importantly as, as a means of keeping your eye out on what people in the neighborhood are doing. I mean, these things are, they're, they're quite effective, actually. Um, it's Big Brother watching you very, very closely. And the, the character at the end of the film um, uh, stands up, paints a sign, and it says, Viva Fidel, and she identifies the place. This is the, you know, this is the block committee uh, 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 at, this, at this housing complex. Esto es un comité de defensa de la revolución. People ask me about Cuba, and, and, and I've, been there. I've been going to Cuba since 1981. I've been going there for 30 years, and I've been there, you know, dozens of times. People ask me, to, you know, to explain Cuba, and, and I'll tell you, it's so hard because, you know, uh, uh, there are so many layers of Cuba. Nothing there is black and white. You know, there are just layers upon layers of, 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 of reality there. And, you know, they say that in Latin America, people say that the cara cabeza es un mundo. You know, each head is, is its own world. And, and the thing with Cuba is you talk to five Cubans and you ask them about, about you know, life in Cuba. And you'll, you'll get five fairly different, uh, different versions of, of, of what, what it's like there. And here's, here's where it really gets tricky. You talk to those same five Cubans on different days and you'll get different versions from each Cuban. So, so this like. is why I ask your interpretation of that final scene, mm. whether you see it, whether your interpretation is that's irony at the end. It, it, it's not be, because it, it is and it isn't. And, 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 and I'll tell you why. Uh, it, it isn't because the sign says, Viva Fidel, long live Fidel. And I really believe, and I'm getting this, it's, these are not my words. These are words from, from other Cubans, from Cubans. I think uh, um, uh, particularly as, 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 you know, the revolution wears on, they've been at this now for 53 years. You know, you know Raul Castro has, has pretty much conceded that the current economic model is not sustainable. You know, uh, uh, they've still got the U.S. blockade, which is very much, it's a very, very real thing. It's very effective. I've, I'm coming to the conclusion that there are many Fidelistas, many Fidel supporters on the island. And they feel a, a, a sense of, 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 of loyalty to Fidel. Um, but I'm not sure. It's difficult. It's more difficult to gauge, I think, their level of loyalty to the current political process. And sadly, uh, you know, or not, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Fidel, of course, is, he's, he's aged now and, and increasingly uh, uh, feeble. And I think uh, um, that what, we, what we've already interpreted as being pro-revolution has, in fact, been more pro-Fidel than pro-revolution. And as he fades, perhaps some of that sentiment fades as well about the, about the process, not about Fidel. This is a very unvarnished look at public housing in Cuba. What do you think the Cuban reaction, official reaction, will be when they see this on YouTube? The last couple of times I've, I've gone to Cuba, um, I get the sense that people there feel that, that a change is impending at, at, at just about every level, you know, from the street to the institutions to, to some of the people who, who run the institutions, um, um, you know, because or partly because I've been going there for so long, I know people in, in, in positions of, you know, control, influence, power. 
and and um, and I think that they that they recognize that that um, things things must change. I mean, they have been changing. You know, a year or so ago, uh, Raúl announced these fairly important economic changes. You know, for the first time in 53 years, Cubans can now open small businesses. They they can buy their the, buy cars, sell cars, buy homes, sell homes, buy apartments, sell apartments, and so forth. I mean, that that hasn't happened for half a century. Now it's happening. So that they know change is coming. Uh, I think actually that the 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 more pensive, the more thoughtful components of Cuban society will welcome this uh, uh, this kind of criticism um, uh, that doesn't you know challenge the existence of the state. Um, uh, it doesn't condemn anyone, but it, it asks questions. Okay, why can't we fix this? Bill Gentile, my colleague at American University. Thank you very much for joining us today on Latin Pulse. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. The documentary project Solar de Once can be found on Bill Gentile's YouTube page online, along with a trailer for his upcoming Cuba project, Through Their Eyes. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at Latin Pulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine, announcer Victor Kilo, and writer Jordan Derry, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.